Welcome to today's episode of the Grind Road to Success podcast, the place to be if you want to learn how to set yourself apart from the competition and reach your highest potential. I'm your host, Zach Krisik, and if you haven't already yet, hit the subscribe button so you never miss out on another podcast episode and the many tips, tricks, and strategies that can help you reach your highest potential. Without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Grind Road to Success podcast, where we sit down with other athletes, coaches, and professionals, gaining new insights and perspectives on how you can begin to perform at your highest potential. So today we have the pleasure to sit down with Mitch Dahl, who is a former multi-sport athlete and sport physiotherapist within the Zone Sports Physiotherapy. So thanks for joining us today on the podcast, Mitch. Yeah, thanks for having me, Zach. I appreciate it. Um, Multi-sport athlete is pretty generous, I think, to uh, to call me those things. Uh, enthusiastic amateur is probably a, <laughs> a pretty fair title. Um, no, thanks for having me. It's exciting. You've done some neat stuff here. You've had some really interesting uh, guests. Uh, both, I've, you know, a couple I've listened to, for example, Andrew and Tom, and and some of those things where they provided some really good insights from an athlete perspective. And then, uh, well, Tom was both athlete and uh, sort of mental training coach as well. So, you know, hopefully, I can provide. Uh, a few pearls here and there from uh, from my physiotherapy experience, maybe my experience working with student athletes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm really excited to dive into this uh, talk today. And yeah, just getting new perspectives, you know, from everyone and, and different insights here and there that I feel like athletes can, you know, pick and choose from to benefit themselves moving forward. Um, but yeah, you know, let's dive right into things. Tell us a bit about kind of your experience growing up and what led you into the position you are today in helping, you know, athletes on the physical uh, side of things yeah fair enough um so i i'm uh, i grew up in a small town um and uh i'm a little bit older than you uh as you as you can tell and as you know uh so growing up sort of back in that generation it was very sort of what we'd say now is sort of multi-sport um or sort of non-special non-early specialization in sport so if the sign-up sheet came around uh you basically signed up for it, whatever it was we there were certainly primary sports that i played as far as hockey ball a lot of basketball um yeah, but we played soccer we like if there's a curling thing in the school you'd go curling if, if we played volleyball we played badminton track and field um you, you know you'd sign up for all those things and so that was sort of from a school and sort of organized perspective but i think a lot of it was driven probably from how we were probably um encouraged uh to get outside uh and play by our parents so uh, you know, there was in a small town, I mean, our town was like 1500 people. So uh, not huge, you know, everybody. Um, and a lot of people you go to school with, you'll hang out with after school. So yeah, there'd be a pickup football game um, or we'd go play some sandlot baseball or, you know, whatever, we'd hop on our bikes and ride somewhere. Um, and certainly during the summer, you'd go all day. Uh, and then if it got dark, you just switch to something else. You might play like who knows when you're little, you'd, you'd probably play like kick the can if people remember what that game is. Um, and some of those things that you could do at night or sort of thing, you know, we'd, we'd go until it got dark. Uh, and wintertime, you'd, you'd just find lights and play road hockey, right? So uh, the game would go on because there were, you know, street lights to play under. So it was a very sort of uh, 
rich variety of things we could do. Um, and certainly some of my friends, um, and to a certain extent myself, like I said, I, I probably ended up playing sort of basketball was sort of my primary thing. Um, I was the tall kid in the small town. So <laughs> it's where it directs you, but I, I really had a passion for it as well. Um, and so, so played a lot of that through junior high and high school. Um, and then I had friends too that would go on and, you know, focus on hockey a little bit more, uh, football, things like that. We didn't actually have baseball in our town. We had, we had softball or fastball uh, just because there are no baseball facilities. But it was funny because we'd play baseball, like away from our fastball practices. We'd just find a diamond and play baseball on our own, like said, sort of sandlot ball. So a lot of sort of my uh, upbringing would have been in that format. I don't know if that paints a good picture, hopefully, uh, for what you can see. But I, I don't think that's uncommon. I think, I think a lot of um, people have grown up that way. Uh, I think there's a shift certainly now more where we see a lot of early specialization and things, which, which has sort of pros and cons as far as development and things like that. And, but also stress, um, burnout, some of those things with kids. And then also really not kind of always developing a full sort of scope of physical literacy. Um, and if people aren't familiar with that term, sort of you think of having, you know, literacy period, you can read, you can speak and, and how, um, sort of broad your literacy is, um, is probably what you've been exposed to in school, you've read on your own, you know, comfortable yourself, right, you're speaking in public right now, um, those sorts of things, whether it's via digital media or in-person sort of conferences. Um, physical literacy is much the same in that how broad is your physical literacy? Can you run, jump, tumble, kick, catch, throw, fall, get up, do cartwheels? Can you, you know, and so the broader that physical literacy is generally Speaking, it allows you to express your athleticism. Um, and we'll probably get into that a little bit later on as we go through, but, but I think that that's sort of some of that take home that I learned growing up is that if you get that physical literacy at an early age and continue to develop it, you can pick up things, even if it's not your primary sport, you know, you can go golf or you can play tennis or you can downhill ski, you know, all those things, um, you may not be great at it, right, right away or ever. <laughs> potentially. <laughs> I'm a great skier, but I enjoy skiing, right? Not a great tennis player, but I enjoy playing tennis. Um, but you can you can tackle some of those things um, with that foundation. So so I guess leading through there until I got into physiotherapy, um, I actually had a knee injury when I was relatively young, kind of grade nine-ish, um, and had uh, surgery on my knee, um, orthopedic surgeon, did a arthroscopic procedure and kind of cleaned up my knee a little bit. And so that was kind of my first exposure following surgery to physiotherapy. Um, and so being someone who was very involved in sport and enjoyed sport, and it seemed like an area where, you know, it, it continued to keep you engaged in sport potentially. Um, that's probably what first piqued my interest a little bit. And then uh, from there, certainly as far as the training aspects and things, you start to gain a little more knowledge. And then through school, you know, we get to talk to some people, maybe have a couple mentors in the community. Um, we would have a community therapist there because at that time there would be no physiotherapy clinic in the, in the, community itself. Um, but then meeting some mentors at that time that would come through town as a community therapist, they'd be happy to meet with us. And it was really great um, that they allowed us to sort of chat with them and, and talk about their profession. And so then going to university, um, I didn't play any post-secondary sort of collegiate level sports at all. I continued on my uh, enthusiastic amateur uh, career <laughs> with a variety of sports, uh, both organized sports playing like in you know, men's league basketball and things like that. And some are playing in, in uh, like men's league baseball. Some of those, you know, we did those things back in the day when I was in university. Um, and then, then 
going from sort of my undergrad that time and the format changed now. Now physio is actually uh, a master's program where you need a degree fully to get in. That's kind of evolved from back in the day with the, the older crew like myself, where you would have sort of a pre couple of years in arts and science, you'd apply and then you'd finish the program. So, so that's kind of what led me there. Um, and then within physio, uh, much like sort of that whole physical literacy and literacy thing, there's a whole variety of things. You can work with geriatrics or older individuals. You work with pediatrics, you can work with kids. You can work in sport and private practice. You can work in hospitals. So there's a, a really wide variety in physical therapy where you can apply your interests and then hopefully your expertise uh, as you develop that, as you go through. And certainly um, sport and orthopedics was kind of where my primary interest lay. So that's kind of where my focus was. Um, and then um, I did actually work in pediatrics on a couple of my placements and really quite enjoyed that as well. Um, and if I wasn't doing what I was doing today, I think I'd probably be working in pediatrics. Um, and then I was, again, I was fortunate, you know, and, and that comes up over and over again, I think in personally in my journey, but I think um, sharing, you know, conversations with a lot of other people, um, it's the impact other people have in your lives, whether it's a coach or another physical therapist or a leader in business or where you can gather information. I, I think that's a really important thing is don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, you know, everybody, everybody's willing to help, but I'm quite happy if people email me and ask me questions or if someone says, hey, do you have a chance, you, want to, you know, have a coffee and talk about something. Physio-wise, um, I'm quite happy to do it because a lot of people did that for me. Um, and I definitely want to continue to pay that pay that forward. Um, so I had some really good mentors. Um, my first job out of uh, university as a physio was working for Chuck Armstrong here in Saskatoon. Uh, and Chuck would certainly be recognized as one of the forefathers of uh, physiotherapy, um, sort of sport physiotherapy in Canada and sport medicine and that whole sort of connection of those things as they go through. Um, so, you know, being around Chuck a lot was a, a huge opportunity for me. Um, and he was very generous with his time and, and uh, sort of mentoring me as, as I moved forward. So that certainly gave me a really uh, fantastic sort of stepping stone as far as saying, okay, here's, here's an opportunity to work with someone that's been around the world really, well, largely with track and field, but also worked with a whole variety of other sports. Um, and so to learn from someone like that is really important. So that's probably a really long shaggy dog story as far as how uh, we got to where we are today. Um, but that's, that's probably where it is. And then worked in private practice. Um, it's kind of scary to think, but I'm, I'm just about uh, going to be in year 30 of private practice um, as a sport physiotherapist. So um, there's been lots of continuing mentorship uh, for me going forward uh, with great colleagues and people like that. So um, it's interesting. I, I think as we add staff to our clinic and the colleagues I work with in our, in our clinics, I sometimes laugh. I think it's getting easier and easier to hire people that are smarter than me. Uh, <laughs> Because there's there's just great people coming out of the university um, with tons of talent, tons of motivation. And so it's, it's exciting to work with those people, both within our facility and the other facilities in the city. It's a great community. We have a fantastic sport physiotherapy community in Saskatoon. It's, it's a great bunch. So, Mitch, I want to backtrack a bit here. You know, you kind of mentioned the physical literacy side of things. And I'm curious, you know, what do you suggest for other athletes or what advice do you have for others to be able to increase that physical literacy side of things and be able to perform at their maximum potential, whether that's on or off the field? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's that's a thing that I see quite a bit in my practice. Obviously, I'm working with people that are have been injured or have had surgery. And so we're trying to get them back to whatever sport uh, or activity or work for that matter uh, that they might be. I work with a wide variety of age of people. So anybody really from, you could say from age eight to 88, really. Um, 
but I think looking at sort of the physical literacy aspect, probably we could even sort of almost take a step back a little bit and look at sort of what was formerly known as long-term athlete development. It is now more sort of the nomenclature is more long-term development. They've kind of taken the athlete part about it because they realized, well, really all of us should have long-term sort of physical ability development. Um, so if, if you're, you want me to dive into that a little bit, is that okay? Yeah, yeah, please yeah, share okay. yeah, whatever knowledge. Yeah, so just there. to go back, yeah, just because some people might not be familiar with that whole idea of long-term athlete development or like I said now, LTD, long-term development. So if I, if I say LTD, that, that will be long-term development. So several years ago, um, I'm trying to think when, um, so if, if people want to go look and you can even, I'm not sure if you have show links that you can include this in potentially, but um, in Canada, it's sportforlife.ca. And so Sport for Life uh, was established through a large sort of committee of, of individuals who are really uh, passionate about making sure let's keep people healthy for life. But let's also recognize people may have different levels of fitness, competition, or goals to potentially like elite high level sport. And how do we incorporate that all? Um, and so it's a tremendous group of people uh, with a tremendous amount of experience in human development, exercise, physiology, um, et cetera, as we go through. And so the, the process or these sort of stages that they've recognized um, have evolved over time. So um, if you think of sort of stages in our life, we can, we can categorize them in very different ways or similar ways, but that are applying different things. So someone has chronological age. So you and I each out of, were born at a certain time. And at this point, right, I'm 52 years old. That's my chronological age, right? So, and a lot of times that's how sport is categorized because it makes sense as far as keeping people organized and who matches up with who and traveling and all those sorts of things and having competition. But really, as you know, particularly if you get to that age group that is probably between the ages of like 12 and 16, maybe even earlier than that, could be maybe go 11 to 17. There can be quite a significant sort of potpourri of, of people that can be different uh, appearance physically, right? You can have someone who's 15 that doesn't have any facial hair. You can have someone that's 15 that has been shaving for a year and a half or two years, right? And those people are very different from their physical development versus their chronological development. So from a physical developmental age, people can be very different compared to their chronological age. And that's where some of those things become important as far as growth spurts, like adolescent growth spurt, when people are growing the most, when they're going through some of those changes, there's a lot of important changes happen in our body. And as is obvious, they're not the same as they were when they were eight, nor are they the same when they're gonna be 18 or 28 for that matter. And so the type of activity they do, um, the way they learn those activities, the way their body adapts to those activities, um, how they all respond to that will be very different those ages. You know, it's a whole idea, you know, using our baseball example, right? You know, like people can all go to YouTube University which can be valuable um, at times, but at the same time, somebody sees Mike Trout training, right? And thinks, hey, my 11U team should train like Mike Trout. Well, that's probably not a really good idea, um, you know, obviously given his level of athleticism and technical and tactical skill. Um, so applying that to children can only be sort of, um, you know, inappropriate, but it's, it can be kind of dangerous and harmful from a physical perspective if you load somebody the wrong way. So the idea with sort of the long-term development stages is to give a framework for people to say, okay, this is maybe where someone is developmentally. They associate sort of chronological age ranges just because it isn't specific. So you can't say, well, this age, this happens at age 15. Well, it doesn't, it could be from age 12 to 17. 
So if they break down long-term development, like I said, again, it's all listed on, on the sport for life website. They do a really good job on there. But if we kind of look at sort of some of those initial things, um, I wrote down a couple of notes here just so we'd have a little reference point. There's, there's a whole range of them, but basically um, it would start with active start to sort of phase one. And phase one is essentially kind of age zero to six, right? So it's a lot of exploration. Um, it's a lot of uh, unstructured, really active play. So kids exploring movement and things like that, playing on the playground, getting out in the yard, if they're you know just starting school, maybe preschool, kindergarten, those sorts of things. So just feeling how their body moves, exploring spaces, all those sorts of things as they go through. Second phase would be fundamentals, and that's where you start getting a little bit more into that aspect of um, sort of basic movement patterns and things like that. Um, some introduction into some simple skills, maybe that might be a little bit more sport specific. But again, the whole team being very well rounded and participating in a bunch of different things. Then from the fundamentals phase, they go to a learn to train phase. And so learn to train now, it's almost you might be getting a little bit more technical skill. So in hockey, you might be learning more skating, puck handling skills or something like that. Um, certainly throwing, swinging a bat and baseball, different, you know, some of those basic skills, but not still more of it is play directed and less competition directed. Um, so the percentage that they'd actually be in competition would be really quite low um, versus the part they'd be in training or practice it's termed as training in the stages but basically uh in practice time you know you know learning about the sport and again doing a variety of sports throughout the year so seasonal things as we go through it'll then go from a learn to train to train to train now where you're actually it's like okay you've kind of figured out some of those skills you're starting to refine them and then it goes to train to compete so again competition level starts to expand a little bit more and then it goes train to win and train to win is more like now we're talking about high level sports would so be post-secondary sport like olympic training you know amateur going to professional sort of levels where they're they're an elite potentially world-class level um as they go through that and so that would be kind of that highest phase now that's overall so i guess if we go gone to active start fundamentals learn to train train to train train to compete and then uh, train to win throughout that spectrum there also can be like an initial awareness or first awareness or someone could enter a sport. So you and I grew up playing variety of sports, but actually quite similarly, you and I, I believe, but somewhere along the line, let's say you and I haven't played tennis. Well, we can still pick up tennis when we're like 22 years old or 42 years old or whatever it might be. It's just, you're coming in. So at a different chronological age, but also different developmental ages you go through. But the idea is to say, you can still access many of those points and you may stay at just, as I said, an enthusiastic amateur sort of aspect of things. It's not like you necessarily want to compete in tennis at nationals, but you want to go out with your partner, with your friends, whoever it might be, and have fun playing some tennis in summer. And so maybe even take lessons or something like that as you go through, right? But you can access that. And then also overarching would be um, active for life. So the idea is you can, anywhere along, you might end up going to like train to train. So you played minor hockey but you're not going to play hockey after high school. Uh, let's say in a real organized like you do, you're not going to play junior, you're not going to play post-secondary, anything like that, but you still might play pretty competitive hockey, right? Whether that's senior hockey in your community or another community or in a recreation league where it's, it's recreation, but you're still playing competitively against another team. And so the active for life sort of overarching throughout is saying that you can be uh, fit for life. Uh, you can have competition for life. And those are sort of two sort of streams in there as well, where 
staying active and fit via various exercise activities, or you can also be competitive from a sport perspective and stay involved. So the idea with the whole LTD is to keep people, to get people involved in sport um, and to sort of nurture that love for activity and sport. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sport. Like I say, it could be hiking. It could be something individual like that too. Um, going to the gym, running, biking, whatever it might be, paddling. Um, but that people maintain that throughout because the impact on our society as a whole from a health perspective is tremendous. Exercise, if we look at things as far as health problems, right? And sort of sort of, the, sort of big hitters and long-term health problems, certainly cardiovascular disease um, is the biggest on the list. Um, and then there's a big drop off. Like if you compare cardiovascular disease to cancer, which would be number two probably, um, it's probably twice as much as far as just the sheer numbers of people impacted by cardiovascular disease, which could be like atherosclerosis and things like that. Now, it doesn't mean there's not that many people affected by cancer. It's a huge number, but it just tells you how, how huge an impact cardiovascular disease has on our society. And then metabol metabolic type disease, such as like diabetes and things like that would then fall in there as well. So if we look at those things, and if you look at things that can have an impact on current sort of future health of people and mitigate as much risk as possible, which I, I know you've talked about before, um, exercise is usually the, the almost the number one thing on the list. Even mental things, when there's lots of good research on Alzheimer's and dementia right now too, and looking at some of the things that can impact that long-term for people in preventative medicine, um, there's some really neat stuff uh, that's come out in, again in the last five, 10 years, looking at how exercise amongst other things, not to be all and end all, but it is such a key thing. So that's why keeping people sort of fit for life could be competitive for life, but fit for life then impacts our larger society from an overall health of our society, both as an individual, healthcare costs, longevity, those sorts of things. A lot of times people talk currently about health span and lifespan. Um, so lifespan, again, being sort of that chronological age, but really health span as someone aging, you wanna try and stay healthy as long as possible throughout that lifespan, right? So if you can nudge your health span right up against your lifespan, and if our average life expectancy is 80-ish these days, a little bit longer for females than males, but about that 80-ish, you know, people want to try and get that health span as close as they as they can to that. So that's where this sort of sort of almost sort of mushrooms or blossoms into impacting other things. But if we bring it right back down to that basic LTD stuff, it's like getting people moving, getting people moving well, and getting people moving often, really that sort of perspective. So through that chain, as you build your physical literacy. Um, now as a sport perspective, if we specialize very early, so some of these people talk about late specialization sports and early specialization sports. And I'm not sure, have you guys talked about this on the podcast before? I don't know if you have, I don't. I don't think we have dived into it much yet. Yeah, so, so late specialization would be generally speaking, most team sports. So what that means is someone's gonna peak later in life. So if you look at who the best, baseball players are, you know, who's the best WNBA player, who's the best NBA player, et cetera. You can go through all sort of the big sports that way, but then also collegiately, if you look at volleyball, wrestling, whatever it might be, no one in those sports peaks when they're 14 years old, right? They're all going to be mid-20-ish is generally speaking when they've reached their sort of peak performance level. You know, if you look who's the leading scorer in the NHL or if you look at whatever, who's performing at the highest level in Major League Baseball. Um, so those would be late specialization. It means it takes a while to develop the physical abilities, the technical abilities, and the tactical abilities. Actually, I think Tom talked about physical, technical, and tactical as well when he spoke with you. So, so carrying that over. So same sort of thing. 
I mean, now there's some sports where your physical size will impact things. Gymnastics is one of those where it's a relatively early specialization sport. Because once an athlete matures and grows, if you think of a gymnast, they have to propel their body through the air across a mat or on some bars, whatever it might be. So the larger their body mass, it becomes more challenging. So if you think of younger gymnasts, their strength to weight ratio is off the charts, really, as it is with older gymnasts as well. But they're having to move more mass around and they have to develop those skills at a fairly early age so that they can maximize their potential. So, so that's a good example of an early specialization sport. Um, because that skill set. So that is one where you have to specialize fairly young, but the vast majority of sports that most people consider sort of, you know, when we're talking about sport development stuff and whether it's hockey here, baseball, football, basketball, volleyball, soccer, etc., most of those are all late specialization sports. So meaning that you, if you are at a high level and you're passionate about it, you want to continue to develop, um, you probably uh, can specialize in that sport, but it's probably when you're like 15, 16 years old, again, that's a chronological version, but that's when you can sort of get to that point where it's more, you know, trained to compete. But even at that point, you probably should be playing at least one other sport. So baseball is a good example for the summer. Maybe you guys play hockey or basketball in the winter, right? Something like that. Um, just based on development, um, variety of movement, those sorts. So up to that point, it doesn't mean you can't be passionate about a sport and, you know, really practice a bunch and, you know, but you should be doing some other things too, to develop that broad-based um, physical literacy or athleticism. So I mean, you know, in the past before physical literacy kind of became a catchphrase and um, people talked about ABCs, right? So agility, balance, coordination, and speed, if you kind of count the S on the end of the ABCs um, and developing those things over time. Again, it's talking about a variety of skills, right? And yourself, you've played sport, a uh, variety of sports, uh, baseball, football, different things like that. Um, and if you think of a lot of the people that you've played with in the past, and if you think of probably players that you've played with uh, that have been very good at sports, a lot of them are probably very good at other sports. Um, or if you had a team event where you'd say, let's go play a Texas scramble, even if one of those individuals hadn't played a lot of golf, they'd step up and you'd watch their swing and it's like, well, that's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> they just picked that golf club up and they're swinging very well. It's usually because they have a broad base of athleticism. And there's been various things, certainly social media, et cetera, that have illustrated that. And they've looked at recruitment class. I think there's a famous graph that was posted from Ohio State where it looked at um, the one recruiting class of like, you know, 40, 40 players for the football team at Ohio State. And that 80% um, of them were multi-sport athletes. And very few of them were just football players. Some of them were, but it was a really small number. And that most of the athletes had come through had played football and ran track and they played basketball and they did a whole bunch of different things. Um, and so if someone is a good athlete, um, they can kind of pick things up and, and learn it. Also, then if they do specialize, having that broad base probably gives them more room in their ceiling even further to say, okay, I've got even more space to improve my ceiling because I do have this broad foundation to work from and further enhance with my specialization as I go forward. So again, there's, there's lots of layers to that, but if you, you really just think of that LTD is there's phases that we go along um, developmentally that give us windows to get better at something and develop something, whether it's our basic physical literacy, whether it's technical skill, whether it's later on it's tactical skill. And certainly windows to say, well, here's a good window to develop your strength. Here's a good window to, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and I think that's where that framework um, can be applied. And certainly most of our national sporting organizations, again, whether it's baseball, hockey, softball, 
basketball, different things like that, have all essentially adopted that framework and then have provided to their coaches. So the idea is to have that sort of trickle down to the coaches at the grassroots level and say, hey, if you've got a bunch of eight-year-olds, really, you should be making sure that their physical literacy, whether that's part of your baseball practice or whatever, that they're getting better at running, jumping, catching, you know, all those different things and moving well. Um, and that your balance of competition to practice, if it's that eight-year-old group, you should be, you should be spending lots of time in practice. Um, more so than just strictly competition because they'll get exposed more as you know you play and coach baseball so the number of reps you're going to get in that practice situation is now thing getting to touch the ball or swing the bat whatever it might be is a lot higher than in a competition scenario so from a developmental perspective it gives you an advantage that way yeah you know that's very interesting you know so many points there um, but especially relating to that athleticism piece just in general you know I look back to you know, when I grew up playing every sport from baseball, football, hockey, track and field, basketball, golf, we did it all. Um, but yeah, how a lot of those skills also transferred over to the other sports I was playing and how that helped me, you know, in the moment, whether that's like you said, just on the speed, the agility, balance, coordination side of things that helped me so much more in the long run compared to, you know, just specializing in one singular sport, especially at a younger age. Um, of course, as you, you know, you get to the higher levels, you get to the high school level, the college level, you start specializing more. But I felt like just having that overall athleticism and those abilities helped me so much more in the long run um, compared to, yeah, just focusing on that one avenue. But, you know, I want to ask you now, what are some specific things that athletes can do to put themselves in the best position for success while limiting the risk of injury through that LTD process? Yeah, so in regard to sort of uh, injury um injury prevention which sometimes can be a debatable term so like can you actually prevent an injury um it's probably more like in some ways risk mitigation or minimizing the risk of things might be a better way of saying that but injury people can identify with injury prevention and so i get that and that that's very fair um and how that applies to sort of uh student athlete um i think in many ways you know talking about student athletes um i always tell everybody in the clinic uh and probably my kids too, which drove them bananas, I'm sure. Um, but uh, student, there's a reason they put student first and student athlete. It's not to take away from how much fun or the potential, you know, traveling competition you can do as an athlete. But generally speaking, uh, students are still going to pay the bills at the end of the day, um, long-term wise. Um, and student is in some ways then as a secondary thing, also how you can approach your development as an athlete. Um, and an individual overall, really, um, physically, emotionally, that sort of stuff. So in regard to injury things, I'll often say if I've talked to different groups or talking to an athlete uh, in the clinic, I'll often say, you know, if you think of the way you approach your game, whether it's an individual game or a team game, uh, you might watch film, you might scout the other team, you might do video analysis of what you're doing, whether whatever skill that might be, swinging the bat, let's say. Um, and so you might break that down because you're, you're trying to really figure out sort of, again, physically, technically, skill-wise, and tactically, sort of like if we say IQ, sort of baseball IQ or football IQ or whatever it might be, um, how you can really maximize um, all those tools in your toolbox. Um, and that's good. That's what you need to do, uh, you know, to develop uh, in your sport as an athlete. Um, but again, that old quote, and, and I probably use quotes too much sometimes, but it, but it is true, the best ability is availability, right? So you can be the most talented person in the world, but if you're not looking after yourself, 
your risk of having problems goes up. Doesn't mean you will get hurt, but if you're not checking the things off the list, it's it's probably you know going to put you at a higher risk. So um, the analogy I use with people a lot of times is a bank account. If if you want to in the future um, be able to uh, make some purchases or travel or whatever you might want to do. You, you probably have to make deposits in that bank account or an investment account. You know, we're not, this isn't a financial podcast. We're not going to get, I'll just simplify it and say bank account, but your bank account needs to be pretty flush. If you want to do some things at a high level from a travel business, whatever you want to spend your money on, um, you need to have that healthy bank account. And so whether it's sort of from an athlete or health perspective, and I also always bug people in the clinic and they'll say, well, I'm not really an athlete. I don't know if I could see you at your clinic for things. I'm like, well, everybody's an athlete. It just depends at what level you're doing things. So I like give people, you know, they should give themselves more credit than they do sometimes. So, but if we say health account or athlete bank account, it's like make those deposits. So just as an athlete, you can control a lot of variables. There's a lot of variables you can't control as well, whether it's the weather, the officiating, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of things you can't control in your preparation. Right. So if so, if you're an athlete and you're building a big bank account, what do you want to do? Well, the number one performance thing we all know, whether it's athletically, academically, work wise, family, mental health wise, is sleep. Right. So the first thing on that list uh, at the top of the pyramid would be sleep. If you're sleep, if you're lacking sleep, um, you're in trouble already as far as minimizing performance. OK, um, if your nutrition is out of sorts or your hydration, probably hydration comes a little bit before nutrition. So you sleep, hydration, nutrition, those are kind of the first three things. And as an athlete, a lot of times, like if you had two teams or two athletes that were exactly the same level, uh, technical wise, tactical wise, but team A or athlete A outslept, outnutritioned and outhydrated team B, doesn't mean they'll always beat them, but they're gonna give themselves a better chance to compete at a higher level than another team. Um, and so like from a sleep perspective, there's a sleep researcher that recently said, or was recently asked the question, it's like, what about those people that say, well, I only need four or five hours of sleep. I'm a, you know, I'm type A, I can put my foot on the accelerator and I can go and it doesn't hinder me at all. I only need four or five hours. And his response was in all of our research studies, um, the number of people uh, that aren't impaired to some extent or another um, by sleeping six hours, less than six hours, and he said rounded to the nearest uh, whole number in this study is zero. <laughs> he said, you know, so if you're, you know, most young athletes or more should be probably in that seven to nine, eight to 10 sort of range as far as sleep per evening. And, and if you look even a lot of sort of high achievers in that late specialization playing at a professional level, um, there's some people are sleeping if when they can, if possible, they're getting 10 hours of sleep. Um, because they know the importance of it. There's a tremendous body of research out there now telling us that. Um, and, and prior to that, nutrition or hydration-wise, certainly, and nutrition-wise, there's always been a lot of that information and, and continuing to evolve as well. But certainly sleep has been the biggest one probably in the last 10 or 15 years where people have really recognized the importance of that. So building that bank account from an, from an injury perspective, um, the more you can prepare your body and brain, um, for what lies ahead, whether that be training or competition, um, and have that healthy bank account so you have lots of resources, lots of tools at hand that you can pull out when it is time to train and compete. Um, you're gonna you're gonna tend to put yourself in a better better position. 
you know, financially speaking, it's still the same analogy, but, you know, there's an old quote to financially, it says, well, someone's living in the shade today because someone planted a tree 20 years ago, right? And that's kind of that idea with investing long-term. It, it completely applies to an athlete or any human that way from their health perspective as well. If you're consistent with things over time from the time you're 20 or 30 years old, chances are you're going to put yourself in a pretty good spot when you're 60 or 70 years old, that you've got a good foundation to work from. Um, and so, you know, the, the other one that comes to mind too, is certainly, you know, success often happens when preparation meets opportunity. So if you put yourself in a good position, you know, that's great. You may win or lose the game. That's the nature of sport. Um, but then you have to, you know, the next day you still have to go back and do what you're doing before, as far as your preparation goes. So that when that next opportunity comes, um, you're ready for it again. So that, that's a big sort of overarching philosophy as far as um, building that athlete bank account. Now you can extend it down. So we've got sleep, we have hydration, we have nutrition. Then you can sort of say physical preparation, mental training, you know, obviously through there. And then we're going, you know, technical training, skill training, tactical IQ sort of training in your sport as you go through getting that balance of things. So that, like I said, you build that big bank account. Now in the circumstance when someone gets injured, um, that sort of can potentially turn things upside down to them a little bit, particularly if they very much, uh, you know, their identity is through their sport. If that's kind of very much who they are, they've identified themselves with the sport. And so that's a big challenge clinically um, where I, I try and offer as much sort of support. I'm not a psychologist nor play one by day, but certainly being here for a long time, we know that that really impacts people, right? If you've been injured and now you can't play, so not just physically, but mentally how that impacts people. So in that circumstance, that, that emotional uncertainty and fear, for sure, um, insecurity that comes with that for an athlete, it's like, oh, what happened? I've got a tryout or I was supposed to be playing now. What's going to happen? It's like, okay, well, let's just, let's break this down into small, you know, sort of consumable steps. You go, so first of all, okay, here's where you are. And really educating people about the injury is important. So the anatomy of the injury, the physiology of healing, of tissue healing as they go through. So they understand the timeframes involved. But then kind of going back in some ways to the athlete bank account, I'm saying, so as an athlete, when you're going out to do whatever you might do, um, you would prepare for that, um, for that game and control as many variables as you can uh, to put yourself in a good position. I would then say, certainly with your rehab, do the same thing, right? So if it's early in the rehab and we, we want to protect the tissue, you know, um, we don't want to overload the tissue those sorts of things, going back and trying to play certainly puts them at a bigger risk for re-injury or an associated injury. So I'm like saying, okay, right now your job is to optimize tissue healing, whatever that might be, if it's a fracture or muscle tendon injury, ligamentous injury. And so trying to get them really focused on, hey, injuries happen. It's nobody's fault per se or anything like that, but this is where you're at. So now let's work on the things that are gonna get you back to where you're going. And a lot of times, like with anything, um, unknown is always the biggest fear for people or fear source for people. So the more you can provide education and tools for them, I mean, I, hopefully that kind of helps take some of that unknown and some of that fear away. And then also giving them some relative targets and it'll vary from person to person. No two rehabs are exactly the same. So it's kind of a flexible framework. Like even after surgery, sometimes there'll be a post-op protocol based on what we know to date tends to work, you know, research evidence wise. At the same time, that's gotta be flexible because one person may get to sort of this stage in two weeks, somebody may take four weeks, so we may just take one week. And none of, their, none of that's right or wrong, it's just based on sort of that individual circumstance. So there's variability built in there. Um, but again, 
having them sort of focus on controlling their variables is important. Sometimes other little things too. I, I try to, you know, it depends on the athlete and what their, you know, feelings are about it, but I try and have them be, as long as, as, long as it doesn't make it harder on them to be around their team. Um, I usually encourage them to be around their team, um, you know, so that they can still, maybe they can be a practice and maybe they're able to pick up some tactical information or maybe they're at a game and they can be uh, emotional support to their teammates and their teammates say, Hey, look at, you know, Susie or Joey, they're still here. Um, they don't have to be here because they're hurt, but they're still here uh, and they're dedicated to the team. And that, that means a lot to their teammates. And then that's, you know, again, builds a bit of sort of that strength and self-esteem for that injured athlete saying, hey, I'm still really appreciated. Um, I know they're going to appreciate me when I get back, so I'm going to keep working hard at my rehab. So I'm not sure if that totally answers your question, but that's sort of from an injury perspective, sort of, like I said, building that athlete bank account, hopefully mitigate as much risk as possible when you do get injured so kind of using that framework um, and saying you know control as many variables as you can educate people hear the tools let's kind of move forward from there yes yeah you know there's lots of great points there mitch um i just want to you know touch on a couple myself especially that identity piece you know as an athlete and i feel like so many athletes that identity piece is huge especially you know if you get injured um, but going through your process, right? You know, growing up, I'm sure every athlete has the dreams to make it to the next level one day, go professional. You know, I had that goal myself. Every other, you know, athlete I know has those same goals. Um, but it can be really difficult, especially when things aren't going your way. You're not getting the results you want, or it gets to a point where you got to decide, all right, you know, what route am I going to take in my life? And that was a big thing, you know, an identity crisis I kind of faced after competing at the college level. Um, where, you know, the COVID year kind of hit and that shut everything down for me. And I still had the opportunity to go back and play if I desired. Um, but a lot of things, you know, just changed in my life, my perspective, uh, my goals, you know, what I really wanted to achieve. And that's where I kind of, you know, started understanding how many other athletes were struggling, uh, you know, just with the mental side of things, especially. And that's where I wanted to kind of create the grand performance and help athletes, you know, develop those strategies and skills to push them forward and be able to reach that higher potential. Um, but also just, you know, touching on the point of investment. That was a big thing I wish I would have done, you know, growing up way more, whether it be just investing more time, more energy, more money into your progress um, and your development can help so much more, especially down the line. So, you know, when you get to those higher levels, you're prepared, you're ready for it. Um, you have that experience to actually utilize and set yourself apart from the competition at the next level. But just in another, you know, important piece was that sleep. Um, and that's a big thing I noticed, especially at the collegiate level, even the high school level with so many athletes is, you know, they're staying up late to either study, right? Get what they need done. They may have a late game, late practice. You still got to get your work done. Um, and athletes, you know, especially are just studying all night, um, staying up late hours and then they have that exam the next day and they can't even focus right they have that brain fog um, that's a huge factor especially when it comes to performance right you got a big game the next day well if you're not rested you don't have that energy you can't create enough output to actually get the results you want moving forward um, yeah so those are some very interesting you know points and pieces especially relating to the performance side of things and then just like you say staying healthy um, and limiting that risk of injury in the long term um, so yeah, you know, are there any other skills or strategies that you'd kind of recommend to other athletes or just people in general to be able to reach that next level in their performance um, and kind of navigate the many changes or challenges that they're going through uh, through that LTD process? 
That's good. You know, I agree very much so that, that the identity and the emotional component is huge, um, both from a, a potential injury that might hinder uh, or, you know, and a lot of times it's a window that sometimes opens some things to other people as well. You know, if they've got a little bit of downtime, you know, do they, are they reading more? Do they play guitars, right? Is there something else they can find at that point that then actually becomes a bit of a, a bonus when they do go back to sport? And it's if they do need a little downtime where they can just shut their brain off from their sport or school. Now, totally recognizing and working with student athletes all the time is that they're only 24 hours in a day. Um, and so those are often, you know, very tight, like you said. Um, and so valuing each of those hours and minutes in many ways, and sort of making the most of them, whether making the most of it means you're studying for your exam and making the most of it, you're training for your sport, making the most of it, or stepping aside from those two things to make the most of it to sleep, recover, downtime, shut your brain off. Um, it becomes um, very challenging for an athlete, for sure. I, I completely agree. Um, and which also on the flip side of that, on the other end, um, and again, this is more where sort of the mental training expertise and sports psychology will come into play. But as you said, when, when sort of that time comes when you've sort of maybe reached your highest competitive level, and then you might still play, we'll say men's league baseball as an example. So you're still competing and it's that kind of, uh, you know, competitive for life sort of aspect in the LTD sort of framework. And so you're still going to play hard, you're still going to do those things, but there's not that structure. And certainly I think that's a, a really common challenge for athletes, just observing, not from an expertise perspective, but just observing when you've gone from my week is scheduled in school. I know when I practice, I know when I play, I know when my classes are, I know when I have to eat in between there, I know when we're traveling, this is when the bus leaves or whatever it might be. And so to go from that to all of a sudden be, I have a game once a week at seven on Wednesdays. And the rest of the time I'm in charge of, um, I think certainly the student part of the student athlete can be very valuable there too, where it's like, okay, learning sort of some of those time management skills, valuing the time, and then carrying some of that over into your sort of career, occupation, et cetera, that follows up or continuing, potentially continuing education after your sport uh, career is completed. Because like you said, there are only going to be so many people and it is a it is a tremendously small percentage of the total population that will eventually get paid to play their sport, right? And even at that level, either there's some point in every athlete's career, every athlete, Tiger Woods, whoever it is, Lionel Messi yesterday, we'll say, <laughs> um, where either you use the athlete decide that you're done competing that level or someone else will decide for you, right? And that's hard uh, as an athlete because you, you're you're wired to compete and move forward. And so I think certainly uh, as that journey goes forward, accessing, like I said, sort of mentorship as far as tools, like I'd say, even from a business perspective, um, as physios, we're not trained in school to do a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial business things, right? But many of us will eventually open a private clinic um, on our own or with partners, with colleagues, whatever it might be. Um, and so to tackle some of those things, it's very valuable to have sort of a mentorship group where you might have, you know, either friends or friends of friends who are established uh, business people in the community that can really help you with those things. And I think that same model applies in a variety of ways. Like as I said, even initially when we first started talking, talked about as a, as a high school student, I had 
physiotherapists that I was able to access and talk to. And then as I was a university student, I could go visit clinics and talk to people. And then as a young physiotherapist, you know, someone like said, like Chuck Armstrong is a good example where as my employer, my boss, but also very much my mentor at that time, um, you had input into those things, right? You can still apply that same thing as an athlete saying, oh, here's an older athlete or here's, you know, you great example, you had Andrew Alberson earlier, right? You're someone who's kind of been there, done that a little bit. He's worked his way through high school, provincial teams, you know, collegiate baseball in the States, playing some professional ball, playing at a minor league level and at a major league baseball level, playing overseas. So he's got a, a huge uh, volume of experience um, that if someone said, hey, I'm not volunteering Andrew right now. I'm just saying if someone said, hey, Andrew, you know, can I talk to you about these things? I'm a high school athlete, or maybe I'm a collegiate athlete. I'm just looking for, you know, some tips and guidance on, on things I could think about, whether that's baseball or education or whatever it might be. Um, you know, finding those people in your life and in your community, wherever you are, um, don't be afraid to ask. So I, I always think, um, you know, people bug me because I always say, you know, the magic happens outside the comfort zone a little bit. And there is like, there's relative terms as opposed to like, you know, skiing that black diamond. If you're just starting to learn to ski, that's the risk reward there isn't really good as far as stepping outside the comfort zone. But certainly um, not being afraid to ask people for help or not being afraid to ask people if you could visit with them and just um, learn from them a little bit. Because like I said, whether that's your athletic career, whether it's your academic career, whether that's your career career, uh, work-wise, um, having a group of people to bounce ideas off is incredibly valuable. And so I think as a student, learning some of those skills and, and sort of sometimes stepping outside the comfort zone and, and approaching people and asking them can be super valuable. So as far as a tool, you know, additional tools, like you said, um, the people around you can be tremendously valuable, right? Um, and yourself now, someone who's been through some of those things, right? You're, you're trying to, you know, pay that back as well and help out some young athletes that are coming through high school and maybe going to post-secondary baseball or whatever it might be, whatever sport it might be, um, and sort of helping provide them with a, a little bit of guidance. Um, and that, I think that's, that's tremendously valuable uh, to those young athletes coming up. So I, I think that would be a big thing where I'd say as much as possible, um, trying to access information around you uh, that can help you. Um, and I don't mean that in a selfish way at all, just in a developmental way. It's like, hey, you're smarter than I am. Um, I really recognize and appreciate what you bring to the table. Is there some time, you know, what, uh, we can chat so I can learn uh, and continuing to learn uh, as we go forward, I guess would be the other aspect, continuing to learn, never stop learning as you go through. And again, that other old saying is that, you know, the further you go, the more you realize you don't know is, is very true, right? So being here for sort of in my third decade of being physio, there's just a tremendous amount of information that I still need to learn and, and can learn from my colleagues, from the younger staff that are with us. You know, they bring great ideas. Um, a lot of the coaching staff, and if we talk about baseball again specifically, there's lots of uh, great young coaches in the community that, that bring lots of great things that we as therapists can learn from so that we can hopefully help prepare those athletes to get back into that competitive baseball setting. Um, and so the more we expand our sport knowledge too, that helps us apply the, the rehab principles as well. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I couldn't agree more there, especially on that mentor side of things. Um, and that's something I wish I would have done, you know, earlier in my sports career is find a mentor to help me, you know, guide me through that process, be able to, you know, say, understand, all right, not everything's going to be perfect. Not everything's going to go the way you're going to think it's planned. 
Um, but being able to, yeah, just help and support you through, you know, the many changes that happen, especially within that student athlete lifestyle, because there's constant, you know, challenges you're going to face those failures, and it can be very difficult to, you know, overcome them. But if you have someone and a community, you know, to support you, that's huge, especially to get the results you want in the long run. And I truly believe, I think, you know, there's a saying that if you surround yourself around, you know, five millionaires, you're going to be the sixth. If you surround yourself around five idiots, you'll probably be the sixth. So, and I truly believe that, you know, just the circle and the people you're surrounded with, whether it be your teammates, you know, your coaches, your friend group. Um, yeah, you know, that dictates a lot of the results you get in the long term too. Um, and yeah, you know, that was a big thing in creating our Grind Performance Academy, which for the athletes don't, that don't know, um, it's an online training program where, you know, other coaches like myself, we dive into different lessons each week, um, you know, teaching you how to actually set yourself apart from the competition and manage that student athlete lifestyle. It can be so, you know, challenging, hectic, um, and stressful, especially in the long run. So yeah, you know, that's a great piece right there and something I wish I would have done earlier in my uh, years as well, you know, just learn from someone that's actually been through that experience. Because that's one thing too, I see there's so many, whether it be coaches or teachers out teachers out there. Um, and they're teaching without the experience, they've never been through the process. You know, just uh, my own experience, you know, I wouldn't want to learn from someone that hasn't done business or run their own business, but they're teaching everything on their own. You know, I want to actually learn from someone who's gone through the failures, the challenges, um, those stressful moments, because that's what's going to help me, uh, you know, navigate my own challenges that I may face in the future. And just having that, you know, different insight and perspective, like we're talking about today can help so many others, especially down the line and be able to get ahead of the game, rather than, you know, stay with the pack and kind of doing what everyone else um, is along that route. But yeah, Mitch, you know, I really enjoyed this talk today. I want to thank you so much for sharing your insight, your perspectives on this podcast. Um, and I know there's so many other athletes that can definitely benefit as well uh, moving forward. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, again, it's good. It's a good discussion uh, point. And there's lots, lots of good people, I think, doing a lot of really good things. Um, and, and whether it's in our local community here or well beyond that. So um, like I said, access those people tap on the shoulder, you know, pe people are always willing to, to help out, especially when they're passionate about something, whether it's a specific sport, like you said, or it's education or it's business or whatever it might be. Um, don't, don't be afraid to ask, uh, be open to learn. Um, I always say, if you uh, work smart, uh, well, really ultimately I would top, I usually say be kind, work smart, uh, be humble and have fun. Those are kind of four things I try and remind people about all the time. Um, and those are the things I try and bring to work. So um, again, today, um, hopefully we, uh, I think we were kind and uh, I think we were, hopefully we're working as smart as we can be based on what we know right now. Um, and we're open to learn, which I think is a way of staying humble. It's being open to others' perspectives and learning from them. And uh, yeah, I'd find it's good to chat about this stuff. I'm always willing to chat about it. So yeah, keep me posted, sir. Will do, will do. And yeah, thanks again for joining us today. Um, thanks for the others joining us on the podcast. Hey, if you enjoyed today's episode, then make sure to share it with a teammate or friend. And as always, never settle for average and keep on striving to reach your highest potential on the grind road to success.